Hello, welcome to Army of Crime, your favorite crossover podcast. This episode is our coda to season one, which we are wrapping up as we speak now in the month of February, in the year of our Lord, 2020. So I want to just real briefly talk about some of the stuff that kind of made a big impression on me that I had sort of not... Some of it I had read a little before. Some of it was completely new. Um, and if you are, of course, jumping around the episodes or whatever, and you stumble upon this, let this be some more recommendations to to lodge into your your big old brain. Does that sound that sound about right, there, Dustin? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. It's a bit of a summary of some of our favorite or things that were uh, most memorable to us that we talked about on the first season of the podcast and then maybe looking ahead to some things that we're looking forward to that may or may not end up on a season two of the podcast more just in general yeah in the interestingly named year of 2020 which was supposed to be the cyberpunk future of flying cars and everything else it is kind of like a horrific dystopia but not in any like cool ways we do. I mean, we yeah. We basically live in, in the cyberpunk dystopia, but without the flying cars or like, you know, everyone being able to like hack into computers or whatever. Pivoting off of that, uh, one of the things that so one of the things that we covered a couple times in this episode was kind of one of our. I think we joked at one point that we should just have it be like one of the. We should just change the whole podcast to be about it. Was Hellboy, and there are of course whole podcasts about Hellboy. And if you have not ever gotten into Hellboy, well, there's a bunch of it that we covered on this show. But one of the things that I really liked was when we read Hellboy in Hell. And we covered that in an episode. We talked, I think, Hellboy in Hell and Excalibur. Hellboy in Hell is a really interesting comic that really encapsulates a lot of everything that he's going for. And there's this whole Hellboy like mega story that goes back years and years and years. And normally I'm not the kind of person that tells someone they have to like read all of something for it to be good, right? Because I feel like that's weird if someone says to me, oh, you have to get past the third season or something for it to get good. I'm just like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to ever get there because I'm not going through a bunch of stuff that isn't good. But Hellboy, you really need like the whole complete package and is firing on a lot of cylinders and a lot of levels. And I now own, because of, because of this podcast, I went out and got, they have the Omnibus editions. So you've got Hellboy Omnibus 1 through 4 and their short story Omnibuses. And it kind of does a, I wouldn't say a perfect job because there's a lot of it. And it comes out in sort of a staggered publication order. But those Hellboy Omnibuses, you kind of get the complete story. And I don't want to rehash stuff we already talked about. But it combines this sort of occult pulp fiction adventure with Arthurian mythology. As well as Mike Mignola's interest in secret agents and puppets and Nazi supervillains and that kind of thing. And I would also say that, you know, it's like you do, they do make Hellboy stories. I mean, part of it is that, you know, they publish them in mini series and they don't come out, you know, they have, like you said, a sort of a staggered release order. So they do make an effort to kind of make it so that each Hellboy story can be a standalone story, but it also does benefit from having an understanding of the whole scope of the you know the entire story that has 
a beginning, middle, and end starting that lasts, goes on for, what is it, about like 30 years? It starts like in the early 90s. this is a thing, yeah, and I was going to say, this is a thing that is certainly possible with the medium of comics because, you know, unlike film and TV, the actors aren't getting any older, right? So you can theoretically tell long-form stories that take literally decades to finish, and you can go into absolutely as much detail as you want on every kind of angle, but it just really doesn't happen because it's owned by, you know, these companies or whatever, and they want to wrap things up and move on to new storylines. So you need really need a creator behind the wheel to make a whole thing from beginning to end. And certainly there are plenty of other examples of comics that do this, but compared to all of the comics that exist or that come out on a weekly basis, it's certainly in the minority of being able to have, to borrow a film term like an auteur, right? Craft a vision and then execute it piece by piece over essentially as much time as they're willing to give it. It's a thing that there should be more of, but there isn't. It's very cool. It's a very, it's a unique thing. I think in the history of comics, you know, Hellboy will be, will be in there. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there are people that have done it. Like Judge Dredd kind of does this. And even then you have like comic strips, like Gasoline Alley, I believe has been one ongoing story since the early, like when did that start? That might be like pre-World War One or somewhere around there that's been like an ongoing story where the characters age in like real time so there are examples but it's one that i think is really striking and really memorable and unlike those you know hellboy is actually allowed to have an ending of sorts which i think really helps and also you were saying before like comparing it to like a tv show where you have to wait for it to get good but i think with hellboy they're really you know of course you do have the tour of Mike Mignola and then there's a whole host of people that he collaborates with so there is you know some kind of variance in quality but I'm not sure that I ever read like a Hellboy comic that was like terrible you know where you're like have to struggle to finish it I mean I think there is somewhat of like a certain like standard level of quality that you get with Hellboy story so that you never even though it does benefit from the larger picture I'm not sure that you ever have to You don't ever have to, like, slog through it to get to the ending. Right, right. And one thing I could actually sort of kind of sort of compare it to would be Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman series, which is a corporate comic. I mean, it's entirely owned 100% by Warner Brothers or whatever, but it is something where they allowed him to tell a complete story with the beginning, middle, and end. Um, Obviously, I think it's about 60 issues, so it's not, you know, Hellboy length. But... The other comparison I would make to Sandman is the fact that it starts as one thing and then slowly spools out into something else, right? Because when you first start reading uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, it starts out as a dark fantasy, almost like a horror comic. And then it sort of unspools into this like fantasy epic, you know, and incorporates Norse mythology and Shakespeare. And in a somewhat similar way, Hellboy starts out as kind of this fun pulp fiction, you know, secret agent kind of like superhero secret agent mashup thing where Hellboy and he has like quips and stuff and he shoots things and it sort of evolved into this horror epic, you know, incorporates Paradise Lost and uh, mythology and Russian folk tales and all kinds of other things. Yeah, it, it eventually just turns into a method for Mike Mignola sort of exploring and then incorporating into the story all of the things that he 
finds interesting, such as mythology and puppets. Yeah. So anybody listening to this, if you have not done so, go out and read some Hellboy. They have they have some some spiffy omnibus editions. We were talking once that really the only one thousand percent correct way to get the Hellboy experience would be to read every single issue in publication order. But if you don't have, you know, if you're not Jeff Bezos and you don't have unlimited supply of time and money, the omnibus editions seem pretty good. I have not done a thorough reread of them from beginning to end, but it looks like it's all in there, you know, more or less. Um, obviously, they split it, some of it into the short stories, but that would be my my recommendation to pretty much everybody. Read Hellboy. Hellboy is good. What about, so Matt, are you, have you gotten into as much the BPRD? I have read all the BPRD through the end of the mega story. Are you there including still... BPRD in Hellboy? Or like, are you just, this is strictly like Hellboy? Because I believe the omnibuses, they just collect Hellboy yeah. story. Right. So this is a good point because it, the story branches out into BPRD and then they kind of merge back together at the end. And I suppose the full experience, you'd have to read all the BPRD omnibuses too. I think it basically tells a complete story inside the Hellboy ones. But yes, yeah. the complete mega story, as yes, as you point out, you would need to get all the BPRD stuff in there. There's actually still Hellboy spinoffs I have not read. So there's still more out there. It's a fairly grand... You know, it's interesting because you could compare it to something like the DC or Marvel Universe in the fact that it's like ginormous and there's a lot of different characters in it doing all kinds of different things and it crosses from science fiction into fantasy into horror into more realistic adventures it's impressive because it's all the work of i mean it's the brainchild of a small handful of people yeah yeah it's it's a, a whole uh universe of comic stories which are very fun to explore like the bprd war on frogs arc by Mike Mignola, John, Ar John Arcudi, and Guy Davis is also pretty extraordinary. And that's pretty much like standalone from whatever Hellboy, it doesn't have Hellboy in it, and it's pretty much standalone from his story. Not like completely. I was going to say BPRD sticks with a much more consistent secret agent kind of tone. Yeah. They're like agents. They have a base. They go on missions and stuff. That's true. Another thing that we had read that I had actually read before and I reread for this podcast, and we just covered this in a recent episode, was the comic book Nat Turner, which I really cannot even like emphasize to you how good of a thing Nat Turner is and all of the things that it does. It's like historical. It's almost like, you know, like a documentary I mentioned when we talked about it. Um, there's not a lot that I would add that we didn't just have an episode on, but Nat Turner is absolutely tremendous work that I would put up there with like one of the best things that people have made. I mean, all of the levels that it's operating on and just being so well made. I mean, I think I think Nat Turner's worth your time. It's a quick read. Uh, if you have absolutely even the slightest interest in different ways comics can be told, if you have an interest in history, if you have an interest in just like intense storytelling i would i would hand anyone like nat turner i mean it's pretty graphic but i wouldn't if, you, if you're okay with some graphic violence i would hand pretty much anyone a copy of nat turner and tell them to read it and it's good history people in america really don't talk about slavery as part of the united states history so i think it's something more people should know about too those would be my two kind of picks from the history 
of our season one, I suppose. And there's a lot. I mean, we could go into like the spirit and stuff because I also love Will Eisner's The Spirit, which is has its own kind of issues. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about Star Wars, too. But I'm going to stick with Hellboy and Nat Turner as the two things if I had in my hand and I could hand to anyone. If they haven't read them, they definitely should. I also quite enjoyed uh, Nat Turner and thought it was really good. I um, To mention one thing that was kind of new to me, which I read because of this podcast, uh, was uh, Mort Cinder by Hector German Osterheld and Alberto Breccia, the uh, Argentinian, by way of, I believe, Germany and Italy uh, cartoonist who the writer and artist who created this wonderful, I believe it was originally published in magazine form, uh, comic strip that is sort of about this. It's not, you know, it's not totally explained and it's not the kind of thing where you really want this explanation, but Mort Cinder is basically this kind of like undead, you know, witness to history. So you get all these different uh, kind of stories set throughout history. But the real draw is, of course, and we talked about this extensively on the podcast, is the art by Alberto Breccia, which is uh, just like mind blowing and is so just like beautiful black and white art that you could just uh, get lost in. And I was excited to see that there's some more uh, work by him being put out in English now, it seems like. For whatever reason, and you know, thankfully, I think it's mostly Fantagraphics has decided that uh, all of us Anglo's in the world should be uh, aware of the genius of Alberto Breccia. So his work is thankfully being started to put out in English, which is how we discovered it when we talked about it on the podcast. And I'm excited for to read, you know, more of his stuff. That I think there's some coming out this year. I think he did like an H.P. Lovecraft related story, which Sounds like it would be perfectly up his alley. So yeah, I, I thought Mort Cinder was superb, and I I'm really glad that we uh we were able to talk about it. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's uh, it's something to wrap your head around all of the comics out there like Mort Cinder that most of us Americans don't see. There's a whole universe, a whole galaxy out there. Either for I mean things aren't. Things weren't saved from decades ago. There's no good copies to make reprints off of. Uh, some things are out of print, you know, not translated into English. It, it, there's a whole universe out there, and I'm I would freely admit that I'm not. I don't know as much about some of that stuff as I should. Yeah, I mean, I in the past few years have just been starting to dip my toe into, you know, non-Anglo comic books, and yeah, I think part of the problem is is that because the American comic book industry is so small relatively compared to the place of prominence that comics have in other countries like Japan and in the French speaking world that not not you know not necessarily everything gets translated or maybe not as much gets like translated over into English as you might think um, so I think that's part of the reason why like you said yeah there's whole universes and whole like cartoonists whose careers are have never been made available to uh you know in, into the english speaking world so yeah to be able to discover something like mort cinder is is pretty great if i could pivot now i was there's a couple things now that we're in the 
cyberpunk dystopia year of 2020, there's a couple, if I could pivot to a couple 2020 things that I have a lot of interest in going forward, uh, depending on what shape season two takes, maybe we'll talk about them, maybe we won't. Um, one of those things is the comic Hellblazer, which is coming out now. Um, and if you've never read Hellblazer, it, it's a weird... I'll give you the, you know, one second, too long, didn't read version. So Hellblazer is a comic series starring John Constantine, which is how we are told his name is correctly pronounced. I mispronounce it all the time, and the TV show and movie also mispronounce it. Yeah, I don't think anyone pronounces it correctly, but that's how it's explained in, I think, an issue of the comic, isn't it? He says that's how people yeah. should pronounce his name. So he's a supporting character from Swamp Thing, who is then ult thus ultimately created uh, or co-created by Alan Moore, who then gets a spinoff into his own um, title, right? And this is at the sort of the beginning of the Vertigo line. So there's a time period where you have Animal Man, Swamp Thing, Hellblazer, Sandman coming out. And it's sort of the high watermark of this this period of vertigo where we're still like DC characters, but they were letting them go in all kinds of weird directions. And then eventually all those other titles kind of ran out of steam or got put back in the DC universe. And Hellblazer did this very weird, very interesting thing where it just like kept going. It kept going. At one point, Hellblazer was the highest numbered DC or Marvel title. It got all the way up to issue 300. So Hellblazer 300. And then they decided for, you know, editorial, whatever reasons, um, to give it the axe, and they relaunched it three times, and each one of the relaunches ended up being canceled in its own time. So they relaunched it as more of like a more of a superhero-ish thing, and then they tried again after that, and then there was another launch after that, and now this this is like the fourth version of Hellblazer, um, and it's under a Sandman universe presents ostensibly uses Neil Gaiman as the like chief head editor or something of the line. Anyway, it's written by Simon Spurrier, who has written the character before uh, as part of Books of Magic. And anyway, I've read the first couple issues. I was a big Hellblazer person, and I feel like this one captures some of that magic. So I would definitely recommend it to you. I don't know if you've read it. I read the first issue. It was, think, it, was, it was it was good. Yeah. Do you, think, I, do you think there could be something there? Yeah, I think there's something there. I think they, they maybe recaptured a little bit of that magic. So I am excited to see if that series continues to be good or continues to grow. And like I said, I own all 300 issues of Hellblazer. It's probably the only long series that I actually collect all of or have collected all of. Which one oh, is yeah. the best issue? Of the original Hellblazer? Yeah. That's a really good question. I, I think my two favorite runs are Jamie Delano's run and Garth Ennis's run, which is essentially the beginning chunk of it, the first like 83 issues, which is probably not a con. That's probably a fairly common opinion. Um, and even though saying like the beginning part of it is the best, it certainly doesn't get bad after that. It goes into a lot of different directions. I don't know if I'd pick if I could pick a single favorite issue. Well, um, I remember really liking the I think Graham Morrison wrote two issues that were uh, with art by David Boyd that yeah. I remember being really good. Yeah, and there's also there's a single issue written by Neil Gaiman that's quite good. Brian Azzarello did a run, and although his run overall feels kind of weird and uneven in some ways, um, like the part where um, John is in an American prison. Yeah. 
is pretty memorable. Strong by Richard Corbin. Yeah, and even has a blurb by uh, Alan Moore on it. Does it? That's funny. The trade paperback does, yeah. This must have been before he swore off reading, you know, Marvel or DC comic books. Yeah, I can't imagine that he was, like, following it, but somebody must have put it in his hand or something because he, he apparently read it and gave a blurb. Maybe he's um, a Richard Corbin fan. I would I would that, believe that. Yeah, that, that could very well have been the reason that he read it. But they, he gave a blurb about how Brian Azzarello captured the character. Mike Carey also did a very good run. Uh, Mike Carey gave him almost more like an Indiana Jones globetrotting kind of feel, which actually harkens all the way back to Jamie Delano's run, where he actually did travel the world a lot. In Garth Ennis's run, he's more stuck um, in the city of London and the immediate you know environs around there. If I'd been prepared, I would have picked out a best single issue. Those are my, off the top of my head, different story arcs. There's also a lot of, there's um, Paul Jenkins wrote some of it that was quite good. Again, I feel like some of the issues were, the tone is very different, but it has a lot of great art by who's your 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 um, your guy. What's your guy that draws the Paul Jenkins Hellblazer? Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Sean Phillips, who now yeah. does uh, a lot of, who does like uh, comics with Ed Brubaker, like the Criminal series, and has done some other series. But yeah, he did a, a long run on Hellblazer, and I always felt that he was, did the best John Constantine yeah, maybe a minority Hulk, like, opinion. Maybe a minority opinion, but I felt like he did a great run on the series. Yeah, I would put Hellblazer up there. Is is um, we're talking about unique or good accomplishments, right? In the history of comics, I mean, a corporate. It's essentially just a corporate, you know, owned property by Warner Brothers or something, despite its weird pedigree. But three hundred issues. I mean, the quality average is pretty high it has a consistent continuity at no point do they just throw everything out and start over it kind of builds on itself right because he gets older they stop mentioning his age at some point but he does clearly get older the other characters age around him i think you could do a lot worse than read hellblazer the series 300 issues i mean it's a lot to read obviously but like i said I'm, i'm circling back around i i was very pleased with the with the new series and i'm hoping that it pans out is there something in the cyberpunk dystopia year of 2020? I'm really looking forward to the new Kelly Reichardt film, which is called First Cow. And it's about a cow. Yeah. It's uh, set in the early days of, I believe, Oregon. And it's about a guy who has the first cow in the Oregon territory. And he uses it to make like English style biscuits, the milk from it. It's called First Cow. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, Kelly Reichardt is, to my mind, one of a handful of people who you could make an argument as the greatest living American filmmaker. And this film, you know, looks like perhaps a departure from more recent things, which always have sort of a warm humanity to them, but then also will have this kind of like tension to them. Like in Certain Women was her last film. You know, there's more like the humane. It has is a film that has several storylines and some of them do contain this kind of like unnerving tension, which I think she's like really good at, but also have this level of humanity to them. So First Cow, I don't I mean, it does look like it might be a slight departure, but she's done a period piece before with Meek's Cutoff. And... I um, am, am here for uh, anything uh, Kelly Reichardt does. So I'm looking forward to that motion picture called First Cow. 
It's about a cow. Yeah. Can I tell you a motion picture that I'm looking towards, looking forward to, and I promise not to go on like a whole deal? By all means, please. So there is a movie coming out called Dune towards Christmas 2020. So by the time a person is listening to this, uh, perhaps our season two will have started. I'm not sure. But by the end of this year, we will have maybe a new president and a new Dune movie. A new Dune movie for sure. So Dune is, of course, the adaptation of the Frank Herbert sci-fi novel. It's the it's usually considered by people who consider such things the best sci-fi novel out there. And Dune is absolutely great. And I think it makes a fascinating and perhaps much needed antidote to a lot of stuff in, in pop culture. Uh, because Dune really doesn't give you fan service it really doesn't give you what you think you need and of course i'm basing this off of the assumption that the movie more or less accurately adapts the book but we were talking about star wars in an episode and how this you know there's this nine movie star wars franchise and it kind of sputters from place to place and the fans you know they're they're like everybody has a different opinion and they what they think it should do and what it shouldn't do and as you're making it in real time, you know, decisions are made and corners are cut and whatever. But in Dune is like a thing that just is like, it's like uh, what I was talking about with like Hellboy. I mean, even more so because it's a novel, but Frank Herbert is an auteur. He's, he's telling you a story. He's giving you something. It's he's very literally, weird. he's literally the author of the work. Right. And what I'm trying to say is it's like unique. It's like his vision. I mean, it's weird, right? Like there's a lot of stuff in it that's not in other science fiction. Right. It's not you would never mistake it for Star Wars, Star Trek, other kinds of science, Battlestar Galactica franchises. So I think it could be a, a much needed thing in the pop culture. Right. Something that nobody's seen before now, even better, I guess, would be something completely original that's not adapted from something. But, you know, it's weird. And I think we could use. Well, we a have big seen ticket it before. Movie. Well, in the previous yes. this is the, in third, the previous Dune movie. This is the third adaptation. Right. Because there was the miniseries, too. I feel like I have a lot of mixed feelings on David Lynch's Dune. And the, I have a lot of mixed feelings on the miniseries, too. I feel like if somebody could make the Dune movie be basically as good as the book, you know, that would be a home run. That would be a tremendous thing. I don't know. I really like Dune is what I'm saying. And I'm really, really hoping the movie is good, but also that it makes people actually think when they go see a big ticket movie. Do you think that Dune is an odd choice for a big Hollywood blockbuster film? So it doesn't actually sound that well suited to that kind of a to, to become that sort of a thing. Yeah, it kind of isn't, which is which is weird. Uh, but it is science fiction and it is epic, and I suppose that's how you pitch it to the studio people. But in a lot of ways, it really isn't, and maybe that's why I think it would be such a great antidote to you know, some of the stuff that's out there now. But no, in a lot of ways, it really isn't. Um, Frank Herbert, like, intentionally skips over, like, battle scenes, for example. Dune has no battle scenes. And in a movie, you're probably going to put those in. But thematically, it's it's very complex. And it oftentimes does a 180 reversal on itself. I mean, he's always setting something up, and then he, like, pulls the rug out from under and gives you the opposite. So at no point are you just getting more of what you thought you were getting, you know what I mean? So it's thematically complex, and maybe that means it won't succeed as a franchise. I have no idea, but only thing I could really compare it to would be something like Lord of the Rings. 
but it's certainly more thematically complex than that. So speaking of, so oh yeah, Dune is being uh, this this adaptation is being directed by Denis Villeneuve, the acclaimed French Canadian filmmaker behind such other science fiction blockbuster films as Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival and other films. What do you think about Denis the Villeneuve? It sounds very promising. Like if if someone could do it, maybe he could do it. Yeah, I actually like him quite a bit. Uh, Arrival, I thought was great. Blade Runner in 2049, I was less on, but he's done a, quite a few interesting films. Matt, have you seen the movie Enemy? I have not. Starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, he did that one. It's like this weird kind of one of those double stories where Jake Gyllenhaal's character like discovers the existence of someone else also played by Jake Gyllenhaal. But it's really weird and creepy and has a really I think his films have a really interesting like, you know, visual palette and like textures to them and like the way that he lights them and like the mood. I think he's he's a. Uh, as far as like a guy working on those kind of like blockbuster films, I think he has like a really unique sensibility to them, which I like. I actually am kind of a fan of his. Yeah. And if you were to, as far as hiring someone to do another Dune movie, I think you could do a lot worse. I mean, obviously the ideal would be just bring David Lynch back again to take another crack at it. But I don't think he would want to do that. Yeah. And at one point way back in the day, someone like Rid- I think Ridley Scott was attached which I guess I could kind of sort of see, but. And Alejandro Jodorowsky tried to do. Oh yeah. And he was going to make a a version of of it. Oh, Dune once. And it kind of like fell under collapsed under the weight of his own pretentious idiocy. But that's a story for another time. Oh, that's right. You don't, you don't like Jodorowsky. I actually haven't seen any of his movies. I've just read some of his weirdo comics. Well, so the, the reason that the, do you know all the story behind his attempt? I mean, didn't it run like super far over budget and he was casting all kinds of like it was just total sprawling in every direction. And at some point, the studio person looking at it got a migraine and just pulled the plug on it. Basically, yeah, they had like a giant script the size of a phone book and he had hired like they had spent an enormous money on pre-production and he hired like Moebus to do like concept work and all this stuff. And I think the breaking point was they were talking to a studio and the studio executive was like, you know, can you, would you be able to like guarantee that this film would be like less than three hours long? And he was like, no, the film will be however long it needs to be. And then the studio was like, okay, well, we're not going to do it then. And then that was where it stopped. This is jumping into something else, but have you ever read Meta Barons, which is basically a comic adaptation of all of the weirdo ideas that he was using in Dune? I have not. I've attempted to read a few Jodorowsky comic books because they were drawn by Moebius, and I I don't know that I've ever made it through one. I find him to be extremely tedious it's a very weird writing style that i think he his his, um he doesn't come from comics as like a first art form if that makes sense like he's not writing the way you'd write a comic it's very odd it's also there's a lot of misogyny and it's weird and i wouldn't unabashedly recommend it but i think meta baron's interesting it's like a a bizarro sci-fi version of dune in a lot of ways yeah i believe he recycled all of the some of the ideas from his giant, like, phone book-sized Dune screenplay into comic books. 
Season one in the books. In the can. Season two will exist at some indeterminate point in the future. We're not sure yet. Yeah. So our website is, of course, armyofcrime.com. You can find me on Twitter at armyofcrime. Dustin is at Dustin44444. If you wanted to have the... You can look back through all the episodes. we got all this stuff on there on the website. Um, like I said, it is now the cyberpunk dystopia year of 2020. And before the year is out, we will probably have season two coming at you. I might look like a moron for looking forward so much to the Dune movie. Hopefully I will be not proven disastrously wrong, but who knows? I'm hoping that my expectations for first cow will be justified. It looks like a good cow. Based on the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Well, as always, stay alive out there, people. If I edited out the parts where you interrupted me, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Got you good. <laughs>